Well, here in Revelation 5 and 6, I want to focus really on Revelation 5 and this vision that we've just read here. But I want to go back to something I said about Revelation 3 and 4. In chapter 3, we have the letters to the churches, and at the end of each of the letters, as you remember, there is the promise to him that overcomes. And they are told things like, you will have a crown, you will be in the temple of God, you will have white clothing, um, you will uh, see God, uh, etc., And then when we come to chapter 4, there is a connection because the 24 elders that we've got there who are praising God are clothed in white clothing and they have got crowns upon their heads and they are in the temple of God and the promise of Revelation 3 was that they would sit with Jesus in his throne and here they are sitting uh, on their thrones around the throne of Jesus. And so I made the point that that vision was there inserted in chapter 4 with all the obvious connections back to the promises to the faithful in chapter 3 to say to them, look, these 24 elders are you. This is how you will be in, in the future. And yet, although this was what shall be hereafter, chapter 4 verse 1, a vision of the future, yet it was also what John saw going on right there and then. And that vision continues here into chapter 5, and yet here in chapter 5 we have some difficulty understanding these 24 elders as a vision of the future faithful, because they appear to be there in heaven right then at John's time, and they appear to be welcoming uh, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, who has prevailed uh, through his own blood to open the seals on on the book. So, how are we to understand this? And then they they go on to say, You have uh, redeemed us, verse 9, by your blood out of all the nations, and we shall reign on earth. That's very much talking about the reward of the faithful believers in this life. And yet it seems to be going on at the time of John's vision. He sees them there welcoming Jesus into heaven uh, after his ascension, glorying in his victory. Well, I suggest, therefore, that these 24 elders, they do speak of us, we who shall overcome and shall have all these things, these rewards like crown of gold, white raiment, sitting on Jesus' throne, etc., being in the temple. It is us, but it's also the angels now, in that the angels, our representative angels in heaven, are totally... Uh, connected with us and are our representatives and in this vision they represent us as we will be so when they say you have redeemed us to God out of all the different nations on earth by your blood verse 9 this is really um, talking about us but the angels say it now because they are our representatives in heaven problem for us is that we're so into time and we want everything to be chronological and of course God is outside of time and when you start getting visions as intimate as this into the heavenly throne room of God himself uh, of course there's going to be apparently a merger and a mixing of uh, images and times and locations because God is outside our kind of time that's what makes the interpretation, from our point of view, uh, so sold as we are on the idea that everything's got to be in a strict chronological fulfilment. Um, That's what makes it so difficult. But anyway, that is not going to put us off. The point is that 
those suffering believers of the letters to, to, to the seven ecclesias, seven the number of completeness, those are intended to represent us. Uh, we who are now suffering, and here the visions are regularly inserted into Revelation to encourage them that actually you have already overcome uh, in God's eyes, and what is going on on earth is reflected in heaven. You have your representative there. In that sense, man is not alone, but we are represented before the very presence of God and Jesus in heaven. <clears throat> so, the, the book which is sealed, well, we know the seals, <clears throat> which we started reading in chapter 6, that these refer to various uh, judgments which are to come upon the land of Israel, and there's a great similarity between those of chapter 6 and the situation in Israel in the lead-up to AD 70. And I've suggested in the first talk on Revelation that Revelation is in one sense about what was happening from AD 66 to AD 70, the, the suffering in, in Palestine at the hands of the Romans, and it was intended to have its kind of its end in the return of Christ, but because the body of Christ didn't fulfill whatever preconditions God had set in his own mind for that, it could have been the gospel didn't go into all the world, it could have been they were not united enough, it could have been that Israel didn't repent as they should have done, therefore the whole thing was uh, delayed and reframed, I would say, reframed um, with reference to our last days. And so therefore in some form all this that happened in the three and a half years from 1866 to 70 is to happen in our last days. And yet <clears throat> the, the seals were taken off the book because of the death of Jesus. Now Peter Watkins in his book Exploring the Apocalypse, he, he makes a very fine case uh, it's a very fine book, by the way. I really recommend that. Uh, it gets a bit lost in a few places, but it's a very, very insightful book. Um, Peter made, made the point that the book here is, is the book of life. And what is holding back the, the full opening of the, of the book is that, or, or the scroll, is that the seals have got to be broken. And the seals are broken in the outplaying of historical events uh, here on earth and yet the whole of history as it was set up to be after the time of Jesus was because Jesus had died and enabled those seals to be removed so when you come to the end of Revelation and the book is finally opened and the books are opened and the dead are judged etc uh, that ties in with what we're reading here that the book was only able to be opened because the scrolls were taken off it. Uh, and that was because Jesus died on the cross. So the throne that you see in verse 6, yes, this is the throne that was given to, to Jesus, um, and yet ultimately there is just one throne. And Hebrews talks about us coming before the throne of grace with confidence. The same words are used in, in John in his letters about us coming before the throne of judgment with confidence in that day. There's only ultimately one throne, I think. We're just seeing different aspects of it. We come before the throne of grace right now in prayer, just as we will at the day of judgment. In that sense, 
prayer is a foretaste of the day of judgment. You want to know how it feels to be before the throne with Jesus there on it? Then pray to him. Pray to God. And you have your foretaste of it if you perceive it. Now this throne, verse 6, is therefore, yes, the throne that was given to Jesus when he, he ascended. It's also his future throne. Because the 24 elders are sitting in chapter 4 around this throne on their thrones. And in chapter 3, the reward for the faithful is that they will sit with Jesus in his throne. So it is now and it is future. And what I notice, verse 6, is that in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as if it had just been killed. It's another indication, I think, that... Uh, Revelation was written soon after the death of Jesus. Um, so, silhouetted, in a, in a sort of visual sense, silhouetted against the throne, there is a lamb that's just been killed. Now, I think the idea is that the death of Jesus was, well, he says, again recorded by John, now is the judgment of this world that in a sense he was high and lifted up in glory he was enthroned in glory on the cross and the point's been made that part of the uh, the reason why crucifixion victims lingered for so long was that there was this thing called a sedile a, uh, a seat if you like it wasn't just a piece of wood upon which somebody was suspended if you were just suspended like that you would not uh, die that quickly and the whole point of the, the torture was that to get some relief, they pushed back on this uh, little seat, this little, uh, uh, little bit of wood that uh, was, was attached to the, the actual tree trunk. And that gave some temporary relief, and yet it was what spun out the process of, of torture and death. And so in that sense, Jesus was seated, was enthroned on the cross, and Tacitus uh, records, who's a historian, that the crucifixion was sometimes in slang spoken of as an enthronement. And so you can understand then why the Day of Judgment, the Throne of Judgment, has this silhouette, as I see it visually, of a lamb, a slain lamb behind it. In that sense, whenever we come to the cross, we come to judgment. That's why the Day of Atonement was spoken of by the Jews as the Day of Judgment. And of course the Day of Atonement spoke of the, uh, the, the death of Jesus. So then, whenever we come seriously before the cross, before the slain lamb, we come in that sense before our judgment. And so, this is why, as 1 Corinthians 11 makes clear, there should be an element of self-examination as we come before him. Because you cannot sit there or sit here in front of the cross of Jesus, a kind of passive. You are convicted by that vision, by that uh, understanding of your sin, and yet you are convicted also of the certainty of your forgiveness and your eternal salvation. When Isaiah and Isaiah 6 saw the Lord high and lifted up, John 12 says that Isaiah said that when he saw the glory of Jesus and spoke of him. So 
in Isaiah 6 you've got the Lord high and lifted up and Isaiah is convicted of his sin he says woe is me I'm a man of unclean lips who am I and then out of that same vision there flies one of the seraphim and touches his lips and says you're cleansed you're forgiven and he says wow he doesn't say wow but anyway he, he sort of feels obviously wow and then he hears a voice that says who shall I send to go and preach to Israel and he says well here am I send me so out of that same vision of the Lord high and lifted up on the cross and the same phrase is used later on in Isaiah talking about the crucifixion of Jesus that the Lord there the suffering servant would be high would be lifted up high that's how the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53 opens it's just at the end of Isaiah 52 uh, my servant shall be exalted and extolled and shall be very high but who has believed our report um, so then Isaiah is convicted out of that same vision of his unworthiness woe is me from a man of unclean lips and yet out of that same vision he also finds forgiveness and his response to that is here am I send me what do you want me to do Lord I'll go do it and that really is our same experience as we come before the cross of Jesus that there we see our judgment really if only we would perceive it and so this is why Jesus says in John 3 that he, he's like the, uh, the serpent on the pole that was lifted up in the wilderness and people are to come to him and, and that is what we do now and he also says in that same context that he is the light of the world or the torch of the world and a torch of course was not a, a little tube with batteries in it a torch was a fire that was lifted up on a piece of wood and that's why he talks about that straight after uh, the reference to him being as the snake lifted up on the pole and then he, he says that whoever comes to him as the light comes to him to have their deeds manifest that they are wrought in God and those who don't want to have their deeds revealed don't come to that light, to that torch that's lifted up so the torch lifted up is Jesus on the cross and by coming to him there we have our deeds manifest we are convicted of, of our sin and yet also we are like Isaiah uh, persuaded that he died as the, the snake uh, the dead snake as it were lifted up so that we might be forgiven so that our sin might no longer be a barrier between him and us now going on here uh, chapter 5 uh, verse 9 they therefore praise him now these are the 24 elders who I've said are in the first uh, context here they, they were the, the angels similar to the 24 orders of priests which there were in, in the temple um, this is the 24 priests if you like in the heavenly temple and yet they are directly representative of us who will be saved in the future and they fall down before the Lamb and they sing a new song, verse 9 saying that you are worthy to open the book because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people and nation now, looking at the words, the Greek words used there every kindred is like every tribe or clan every tongue, every glossa, every language group 
uh, every people, that's a people not necessarily of the same ethnicity, but a group of people, um, like Yugoslavia used to be. Uh, it was a mixture of Macedonians, Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, Montenegrins, Bosnians, uh, the whole lot of them, and yet they were all one people in that sense. Uh, so every people, every group of peoples, uh, and every nation, ethnos, every ethnic group, literally those of the same customs is the idea. So the point is that ultimately, as I see it, people from every one of these groups will be uh, redeemed to God by the blood of Jesus. Now there's a huge number of language groups in this world. There's a huge number of kindreds, of tribes or clans. There's a huge number of ethnic groups. Um, we may assume that a country like, let's say, Brazil uh, is made up of Brazilians, uh, but it's not. Well, I mean, it is in a sense, but it's made up of a whole load of tribes and uh, all kinds of different people, all kinds of different ethnicities. Uh, thousands of them. It's the same with uh, some of the African countries, Zambia. You might say, well, Zambians are Zambians. Well, yes, in one sense they are, but there's a whole load of, of different languages there, hundreds of different languages, hundreds of different tribes. Now, there's got to be someone from all those tribes of the Amazon jungle, all the uh, tribes of some of the most remote parts of Earth, have got to be finally redeemed in Christ. Now this is a challenge. It's a challenge in two, two ways at least. One is that if we really think that you can only be redeemed by the blood of Christ if you know and learn and have assented to a very precisely defined complex theological position of the kind that we may have in uh, some statements of faith that are around, well, we've got a long way to go. And it's pretty clear that in the last 2,000 years since the death of Jesus and the pouring out of his blood uh, by which people were redeemed, it's pretty clear that there's not been people in all those uh, loads of groups who have understood all those things. So I think we better, in terms of salvation... Uh, drop the bar a bit in our own minds If uh, on that uh, reflection that, that, that I give you perhaps we should drop the bar a bit in our own minds the other possibility is that you know in the last 2000 years not even Christianity let alone the Bible has been taken to all those people there's no question about that the the message of Jesus Christ has not been taken to all those different clans and tongues and thousands of language groups in Brazil or wherever it might be. It hasn't happened. And yet it seems to say it's got to happen for the final moment to come when all the redeemed stand there in the kingdom of God at the day of judgment before the throne praising the Lamb. Jesus said that when the gospel has gone into all the world, then shall the end come. From that point of view, the challenge could be, the challenge could be, that you need to take the gospel to all those people. That there must be 
converts to Christ made amongst every single tongue and language group, etc. That's a huge amount of work in front of us. The, the growth in the spreading of, of the true gospel, uh, and also, in fairness, the, the basic, very basic message of Jesus, uh, has grown exponentially in the last 50 years. So that so many of these isolated groups have heard something of it, but there's still a lot that haven't. That's why I think supporting the spread of uh, literature in local languages is really very important uh, in, in all the world. And to have the spirit of at least supporting, even if we can't physically do it ourselves, supporting the, the spread of the gospel. And yet God has worked in the last 20 years, I would say, to make it far more feasible to achieve this end. The internet is now all over the place. The way English has become, sorry to say, but the lingua franca, has become the, uh, the most popular language all over the world. There's now more and more people learning English. The way that large numbers of Earth's population have moved, so that now if you stand on the streets of London or New York or Johannesburg or Sydney or Moscow, or even Beijing, you stand on the streets and those hand out tracts, even in English, you'd be amazed at those people filing past you who take them. People from all over the place. People from the jungles of Malaysia, uh, people from uh, all kinds of remote areas of Africa and South America are now living all over the world, and a lot of them know English. So the possibility for the gospel to go into all the world has suddenly, in the last 20 years, in my lifetime, I've seen this happening, has suddenly increased thousands of fold. And I can only say that God's hand was in that. And I personally take that as a great sign that the end really is near. By the way, in Numbers 29, you've got the Feast of Ingathering, which was prophetic of the final ingathering of the redeemed. And uh, there were 70 bullocks to be sacrificed, and 70, I think, is the number of the Gentiles. It's the number of all the Gentile nations found in Genesis 10. And 70 people went down with Jacob into Egypt, and Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, says that the bounds of the sons of Adam are set according to the number of the children of Israel. So, the idea, I think, is that at the final gathering, there will be all nations there. And that is stated here, specifically in Revelation 5. There is another paradigm through which to approach this, and that is that, yes, the blood of Jesus redeemed people from all these different uh, tongues and language groups, etc. But that doesn't mean that they will all necessarily be represented in God's kingdom, if you see what I'm saying. Jesus died for the world's redemption, but it doesn't mean every single human being shall be saved. In that case, then, we should go out there to all these different people, stand on the streets of London or whatever, handing out your flyers, uh, confident that the will of God is behind me, because these people are all redeemed, but they've just got to grasp it. The difficulty with that interpretation, attractive as it, I find it, because it lets us off a lot of hard work, uh, is that, that 
doesn't really seem to fit with what we're told here because the redeemed sing a new song. This is those who, who will be in God's kingdom, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus personally. And he, they say, verse 10, you have made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on earth. The we is the people out of all these different nations. So the bottom line is that the cross of Christ compels us, the blood of Christ constrains us to be convicted of our own sin um, and yet to, to believe in his forgiveness and his salvation, that is certain, and also to take that message to literally, literally everybody on this earth.